Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to On The Tape. I am Dan Nathan, joined by Liz Young. Guy Adami is in parts unknown. He's actually doing something that nobody really wants to do, but doing his civic duty this morning. He will be back to us later this week. Liz, welcome back to the pod. Hey, happy Monday. Packers big W this weekend. I was going to say, your pack is back. They're back in the playoffs. You must be excited about that. But their former Very. coach is hosting them down in the Big D. That is going to be a tough one this coming weekend. We'll see, though. It's a good good, good, good run for you guys. Six and two in the last eight hey, games of the season. it's not over yet. Stop talking like it's over uh, yet. Well, there you go. I mean, listen, this Dallas team has been known to uh, let their guard down, but I don't think Dak is going to do that. He is on an MVP sort of run here himself. But a little housekeeping really quickly. After Liz and I go through everything going on this week, which actually the week is capped by bank earnings, we're going to have plenty to say um, about that. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the oil patch, some interesting news out of the Red Sea causing a couple things to slip. One of those would be shipping rates. The other would be crude oil, and that has to do more with Saudi price cuts. But Guy and I had a great conversation late last week with Kenny Chung. He's the executive director and portfolio manager in Hong Kong of the Estera Capital Fund, and we talk about a whole host of things going on with China, the private credit markets, what, what's brewing, I guess, in their property markets. We talk about some of the geopolitical issues over there and really just the state of the Chinese economy. So stick around for that. That was a great conversation, Liz. But we got to start with the Friday, December jobs report. We saw the 10-year yield get back up above 4%. It's there right now. We've seen the dollar rally a little bit here. It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition between some of the things that were causing stocks to rally pretty aggressively in the last two months of last year. We're seeing the S&P down one and a half percent in the year. We're seeing the NASDAQ down a little more than three percent or so. And some of those kind of inflationary headwinds, if you will,
oil to the economy have kind of been perking themselves up a little bit. I know one week does not make a year in markets, but we've seen a bit of a reversal in narratives in a very short period of time. And I'm just curious, what did you take away from the jobs report and some of the kind of reactions that we saw? And is it just kind of a little reversion after we had such a sharp rally in equities and such a sharp sell-off in yields and some other risk assets that are supportive of equity prices? The reality of it is more that the market got ahead of itself thinking about the idea that, okay, all of the economic data seems to be coming in solidly, yet at the same time, somehow we're going to get all these cuts and we're going to get them sooner than we originally thought. And all of that together is good. When it's not exactly all good, because if you think about when the Fed might cut, that would probably cause a resurgence in inflation if they did it too soon. So the report on Friday was actually really interesting. If you look at just the headline data, the jobs added pretty strong above consensus, which you could take away if if that's the only data that you looked at, you could walk away and say, you know what, things are pretty good. And if you look at the unemployment rate, 3.7 came in below consensus and stayed steady versus last month, you could walk away and say, things are still pretty good. Labor market is strong. Everything's okay. Peel back the onion a little bit more and you find out that hours worked are down and the labor force participation rate was down. So there are some things under the surface that should give us pause. And the hours worked piece in particular, especially during a period that usually hiring goes up and work goes up because of the holiday season, hours worked came down. So some of those just, and again, not a trend, not something that's telling us, oh my gosh, you know, ring the alarm bells, but things that are just inconsistent under the surface. And then the market's reaction, particularly the yield reaction, I think was rational. And now we've gone from, we were pricing in six cuts all year, now it's back down to five cuts. So I think some of that was rational. Stocks had really rallied on the drop in yields. So again, stocks having a little trouble finding more durable upside as yields rose again. Yeah. And I guess the CME Fed funds tracker is pricing now about a 65% chance of a 25 basis point cut at the March meeting, right? So we know the next meeting comes at the end of this month and there's really nothing priced for a cut there. So it's interesting when you think about Again, the 10-year at 4%. The last time the 10-year we have to go back was basically 4% about four or five months ago. We had an S&P that was much lower, right? And so it's interesting to me when I look at some of the big drivers of S&P performance last year, I see Apple down 5%. I see the SMH, which is the ETF that tracks semiconductors. It's down 5% of the year. Some of the other big names, Amazon's down almost 5%. Some of the other ones are down a bunch here. So talk to me a little bit about this notion that the stock market was broadening out a little bit, right? So we had... People are very focused on this equal weight S&P, the RSP, right, which is down about 1.3% on the year versus the market cap weight, which is down 1.5%. So that relative strength with some of the biggest winners down much greater than the S&P tells you that there is a little bit of rotation that has happened. Is this a theme that you think is going to continue? Because all weekend long, as I was reading different strategists, whether they be sector strategists or industry analysts or, or broad market strategists, they're talking about how this is going to be a great stock picker's market. And it's it's funny. It's a similar narrative, Liz, that I heard in early 2022, right after the big run-up that we had in late 2020 and 2021, when everyone knew there was a lot of froth in the market, but they were like convinced that it was going to be a great stock picker's market in 2022. And what we did see, though, is that correlations basically went to one. We had a good old-fashioned bear market in 2022, right? So I'm just curious how you think about that sort of narrative, and it does it harken back to some of the narratives in early
early 2022. Yeah, I think it does. But I don't think even if we do have a down year in equities this year, I don't think we're going to see the same experience. So in 2022, if you remember the big headline towards the end of the year was, oh my God, the, the first time in, I don't even remember how many years, stocks and bonds were both down double digits. And it was this huge event that the 60-40 is broken, diversification doesn't work, it fails you when you need it most. If we do have a down year, if we have some volatility in equities this year because we're embarking on this cutting cycle, because maybe those legs are finally going to get themselves through the system, I think that treasury bonds would actually act as a hedge. So I don't think you're going to see stocks and bonds both down like that. I do think diversification would work. But back to the original idea of the broadening out of the rally, since the end of October, it absolutely did broaden out, right? We had, like you talked about, equal weight S&P had really come off the bench. A lot of the sectors that hadn't done well, I mean, banks were up 20%, I think, since the end of October. Look at things like small cap. And interestingly, small cap, I think this is what we need to watch now for the next month or two, is that small cap stocks are going to be what tell us whether or not that broadening out can continue. And if you look at charts, if you take some of these charts back a longer period of time, let's ignore the Dow for a second because I know the Dow made new all-time highs. But if you look at things like the Russell 2000, the S&P, obviously, I wouldn't even say that we had a reversal. I think we had a failure, right? We tried to get to new highs. We tried to continue that trend upward through some resistance levels that are pretty obvious on a chart and we couldn't quite get through them. Now, that doesn't mean we won't, but for this period in time, we haven't gotten through them. And the last point I'd make, especially in small caps, is there are two indices that track small caps that are pretty widely used. You've got the Russell 2000, which is all encompassing, and it just really mainly includes companies based on what their market cap is. And then you've got the S&P 600, which goes through a profitability screen. Generally speaking, in a risk-on environment, you would expect the Russell 2000 to do much, much better than the S&P 600 because some of that junk and trash will rally and, and people are just throwing caution to the wind. In that period from the end of October through the end of December, both indices were up about 23 or 24%. There was almost no dispersion among performance, which tells me that it was just indiscriminate buying, right? Didn't really matter profitability or not, didn't matter quality or not. It was based on macro factors. It was based on the environment more than it was based on the fundamentals of those companies. So now here we are, the macro factors, some of them still the same, but the yield piece obviously fighting against us in that realm. And you're seeing some of these stocks that had showed broadening out fail at those upper levels. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great point. Guy and I talked about the Russell last week uh, on the market call a little bit and how it's been trading between this range, just about 1600 on the downside since about mid 2022. And that's off of an all-time high that it made in late 2021. It broke out after a long consolidation and got above 2400. So a lot of folks were saying that was the sign of the broadening out in late 2021. And it got everybody in and people got really excited about small caps because what it said about possibly the economy inflecting after a very difficult couple of years with all the monetary and the fiscal stimulus, and this was the confirmation. But then when it was a failed breakout, it led to the downside. I think that's kind of what you're saying as far as you're not making a prediction about what's going to happen. You're basically saying, follow this, because it did work in 2021. And it's interesting. Again, Liz, we've had this very long consolidation, again, in that range, which is a pretty wide range, right? And to your point is that the Russell 2000 off its October lows rallied nearly 27% to its recent highs about a week and a half ago, outperforming the S&P, which is up about 16 
15% or so. But here we are now. We're down 6% from those levels. And again, could it just stay range bound as it has been for the last year and a half? Sure. But the inability for it to break out is probably saying a bit more about what's going on in the economy. And I think that's really important to break out that other index that really screens for profitability because we know that a lot of these companies are very unprofitable. We know that their cost of capital is higher. So they're more interest rate sensitive in a way. So that's something I think that makes um, a lot of sense to keep an eye on. Let's go back to the economy, though, and put a a, a button on this whole issue as we're talking about what that jobs report really means, because it does speak a little bit, Liz, to the soft landing narrative, right? Like it was better than expected, but softer than a year ago, period, right? And so like, and if you're pulling apart some of the internals of it, we still have, though, on the outside, a 3.7% unemployment rate, which screams at 50-year lows, but we are seeing a softening, right? And so that does speak to that kind of soft landing. Now, your concern would be if we were to have a precipitous slowdown, right, then that would be the kind of harder landing scenario that markets are not priced for right now. And Guy and I talk about this all the time. The unemployment rate and some of these jobs numbers don't show cracks until they do. And then when they do, it goes fast. So obviously right now we're not seeing cracks in the labor data as it's been reported. But when you think about what could happen as softening continues, and I think most people, even bulls, expect softening to continue. In fact, almost welcome it because we do want inflation to be completely solved. And you can't entirely solve inflation without continuing to soften demand and soften some of the labor market. It's all connected. But if and when things do start to slow down in the labor market, it's very difficult to ride that teeter-totter and keep it above ground on both sides. Because as soon as things start to go over the other side of the hill, it's like a boulder rolling down, whatever analogy you want to use, a snowball rolling down a hill. And it picks up a lot of speed because a lot of companies look around and say, oh, well, they did it. Now I can do it. Right. And then you're not necessarily pegged as the one that cut jobs. So your fundamentals are bad and everybody else's are good. If it feels like everybody is allowed to start cutting labor, everybody can start cutting labor. And then that's where you get the steam to pick up. There are a couple other things. If you again, peeling back the onion and labor data, the headline data, as I mentioned, still pretty good. I talked about the underlying stuff in this report on Friday. There was another report, the quits rate. So we get jolts number. Part of the jolts number is the quits rate. And I always talk about the sequence of events. You have to remember what the sequence is going to look like. It doesn't just go from zero to 60 overnight. The sequence is that back when the labor market was really, really tight, there were two jobs for every unemployed worker. You had a quits rate that was really high because people felt confident quitting their job. They would find another one or they already had found another one and they felt good about the labor market. It was an employee's market that quits rate has fallen quite a bit. Now, it's not necessarily in a concerning place, but it's fallen quite a bit in the sense that employees are now feeling like maybe I should hang on to this job a little bit longer, or it's tougher to find new jobs if I decide to quit voluntarily. Yeah. And I guess the bigger issue for that is that those are largely, I think, knowledge jobs, right? So they're higher income sort of jobs. We started out last year with a whole host of of big cuts from some of the biggest tech companies who had been on a hiring binge in late 2020 into 2021 and kind of pulling back um, from those levels. It seems like on the lower end, there's still plenty of demand for those sorts of jobs, but those aren't the sort of jobs that can power an economy, right, that is expected to downshift from, you know, two and a half percent to maybe one and a half percent from a GDP perspective in 2024. I want to switch gears for a second here because it seems over the weekend that the House and the Senate have a spending deal, which hopefully could avert a government shutdown. And if you look at some of the trends within that jobs report, the government was a big part of the gains, right? And so the question I guess I have is, are we going to be faced with a 
another own goal, you know what I mean, by our legislators, you know what I mean, that could really slow down whatever sort of recovery or the pace in which is keeping things from falling apart a little bit, because there were some times in 2023 where there was some trepidation about a government shutdown and what that might mean for an economy that was really, you know, holding on for dear life, if you will, and make no mistake about it. I mean, Fed Chair Powell said this a little less than a month ago, 1.4% expectations for GDP in 2024, there is room for error there, right? And it wouldn't take so much to do that sort of thing. Maybe it's a geopolitical event. Maybe it's a resurgence in inflation. Maybe it's a government shutdown. I mean, who knows? Is this something that you're focused on in 2024? Because it's also what's different this time is that we have a new House speaker. We know how quickly he can be ousted. We know why his predecessor was ousted for the very reasons of the deal that he just came to with Senator Schumer, right? The, the majority leader. And so we could see a majority leader Johnson ousted and what that might mean for a government shutdown. And so I'm just curious, election year, there's a lot to really kind of consider here. And is this something that you're worried about, Liz, as a strategist? Mm, I mean, maybe this is a jaded take. I think market participants, many people have lost confidence that Washington is going to get things done in a rational and quick way. And we're almost used to the idea of, oh, here we go, another shutdown on the horizon. And it seems to happen every six months. In an election year, typically what you see, and, and this is the the year that I think could be the, the political piece that changes what we expect to happen in, in any other environment. In an election year, you usually see during the primary season a little bit more risk of volatility just because there is uncertainty. We don't know exactly who the nominees will be yet. There's still debates going on. So during primary season, you see more of that volatility. But if you look at even just things like a shutdown, if you whatever the argument is that we're going through in Washington, in an election year, neither party wants something bad on their watch. So there is going to be a lot of political incentive to just try to keep that boat afloat. And it's possible that they do keep it afloat. Nothing big happens for the year because nobody wants to be blamed and nobody wants to have a reason to lose an election on their docket. So I think the political piece of this this year, unfortunately, and, and this is an unfortunate part of being an investor, has nothing to do with the fundamental of the company has nothing to do with necessarily where we are in the business cycle. There just are going to be political incentives to keep some of this going. The other interesting piece that we haven't mentioned is that bank term funding program that's supposed to expire in March. If that is going to somehow cause a lot of havoc on regional banks again. I bet we see it extended. There's political incentive again to not take that away too quickly, which by the way, the borrowing numbers continue to go up. So obviously there are banks using it. There is incentive to not take that away too quickly and be blamed for bringing the system Yeah, down. you know, it's interesting about the political incentives in election year. The one thing I would say is that House Speaker McCarthy was pushed out by the Freedom Caucus and they clearly align very closely with candidate Trump, right? And so if if you think about their political incentives are to push for the sorts of things that align with his candidacy, and, and you might see some sort of shenanigans. Because if you remember in the fall, you know, then candidate Trump was also encouraging the Freedom Caucus to be steadfast on, on their spending priorities. And the other issue is that this deal also has to come with funding for Ukraine and Israel, right? And so when we think about what's gone on geopolitically, I mean, that could really shape the landscape of this election year. We know that the Democratic Party 
Party seems to be splintered about support for Israel. The Republican Party is splintered for support for Ukraine, right? And, you know, all of this comes down to, I think, their priority is getting more spending for the southern border here in the U.S. So some sort of compromise has to happen because I do expect Ukraine and Israel funding to happen. And the irony is, and this is me putting my political science hat on, is that I think that the Biden campaign is in a real pickle with some of the issues on the left here, and they really should probably just succumb to the southern border funding and get all the geopolitical stuff funded, the wars, you know what I mean, and shore up an area that they're kind of weak on, which is immigration for all intents and purposes. So again, this is not meet the press, but this is this is going to be playing out. <laughs> I'm just oh, drink oh, my coffee oh, yeah, while you finish. Yeah. Over the course of the uh, over the course of this year, so that's going to be really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about oil price here, okay? Because it found some support in the mid to high 60s, Liz, and some of the headlines this morning is that the Saudis in February are going to be cutting prices. We know that there's been some issues in the Red Sea with the Iranian backed Houthi rebels. We've sent warships there to defend shipping routes here. These these issues are kind of tied, right? Because we are shooting up, I, I guess, some of these pirate ships or whatever you want to call them in the Red Sea. There was issues about shipping rates going higher, right, to get through there and the like and all the risks. But we also run the risk of a broader conflict in the region, right? So we know that the Israelis killed a Hamas leader in Beirut, Lebanon. We know that Hezbollah in Lebanon is backed by Iran. So we have the Houthis in the Red Sea that are backed by Iran. We know that Hamas in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank are backed by Iran. And what would a broader war in the Middle East mean, I guess, for crude at a time when the Saudis are cutting prices here? It seems like this is one of the ones that no one's going to be able to put their finger on until it happens. We are hoping that it doesn't happen, obviously. But crude oil today is down. And a lot of folks have just been wondering, like, why isn't crude oil higher given the heightened risk of a broader sort of escalation of a war in the Middle East? Well, I think there's a couple things going on. I still think that the price is going to be more dependent on supply than it is on demand. But I think what's keeping it down is the fact that we're not expecting a huge resurgence in demand. If not, we're expecting a continued softening in demand given everything that's going on around the globe and every country trying to control inflation. So there's not a huge expectation that demand is going to increase, not to mention demand out of China that I think we've been talking about coming back for three years and it just hasn't. And China continues to have issues. So that resurgence of of Asian demand as well falling by the wayside. So I don't think there's demand that's propping the price up. From this level, because it's a low level, and because if you look at just the trend, I was trying to pull it up while you were talking, just the trend over the last year or so, I mean, we're at about the lows that, that we've been at a few times over the last year. From this level, if there is heightened risk, if there does end up being a conflict that breaks out or gets worse than it currently is, I would expect a spike in oil prices, maybe just temporary rarely, but I would expect that to happen. And many people might say, well, from this level, maybe it's not that concerning. And especially if it's quick and short, that's, yeah, that's probably true. But in an environment where we're trying to convince ourselves and the Fed is trying to convince themselves that we've brought inflation down to a comfortable level and that it's going to stay there, it's going to be a tough thing to swallow. Now, of course, we take energy prices out of core measures of inflation, but I make this point all the time. Consumers can't just decide not to buy energy anymore. All the stuff that we remove from inflation is just the stuff that causes the problems. So it doesn't change the issue that even if oil prices do go back up, let's say gas prices go back up, let's say transportation prices go back up, airfare, all of that that follows a spike in oil prices, the consumer gets pinched further and that cumulative effect of inflation continues to be a problem through the year. So we don't want to see 
a spike in oil prices. But I think that from this low level and with everything that's going on in the Middle East, we are running the risk of that occurring. Yeah. And I guess the irony is that at the start of 2022, when you know the administration was very focused on bringing inflation down, they were selling, I think, 20 million barrels a month. I think this is per barons. We'll put this in the show notes from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, right? And, and a lot of folks were critical of it at the time because that is not exactly the intended use, right, of that reserve. It really is for, in the case of geopolitical sort of events with supply disruptions and the like, or, or you know, whatever that may be. And so here they are now, they're buying, I think on average, maybe 3 million barrels a month at much lower levels. And so good on them, but it does seem like there is a soft floor. At least that's what this article is speaking to because it really hasn't been able to meaningfully go below $66, $67. Here we are today, just under $71 or so. And it would make some sense strategically to refill that reserve given all the issues that we have, but it's probably not going too much lower unless there's a massive demand shock, right? And that would be something that would give them plenty of opportunity opportunity to kind of refill that reserve. All right. Well, that's one to keep an eye on. How do you feel about energy as a sector um, in general? It's down right now. I saw somebody on the street upgraded Chevron today. I know that if we look at the XLE, 40 or so percent of that is Exxon and Chevron. Both of those are, are kind of mired in massive M&A sort of transactions. There's been other M&A here. Guy would tell you that these companies are run much better. They can operate very efficiently with crude oil prices even down here. So is this a sector like when you think about sectors this year. Let's say that we are going to be in a choppy market for a while, and it could be one of those ones. There is no definitive sort of range because if rates remain volatile and uncertainty about the pace of cuts, right? And we're going to have lots of sectors. And this goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, the idea of like a sort of stock pickers market. Are there sectors to be bought despite, I guess, macro volatility here that you think you can kind of average into? It clearly, I guess, early this year where there's like the height of uncertainty. Well, there's a couple things. So yes, I, I do think that there are sectors that you can look at. I would wait for a pullback, which maybe the pullback has begun. I would wait for a pullback in some of them that ran up quite a bit at the end of the year. But energy specifically, and full disclosure, I do take positions in sectors. I don't talk about individual stocks, as we know, but I do talk about sectors and I do take positions in individual sectors and I do have a position in the energy sector. And part of it, it's not necessarily about the oil price. I watch the oil price as an indicator of cyclicality. I watch the oil price as an indicator of just risk appetite globally. It's one of the best global indicators of what's going on. And the behavior of oil prices, if you see that big spike and then a drop off. So if you look at the chart right now, it actually looks pretty pre-recessionary. And that's something that, that I look at just on a daily basis to track. But energy companies, to Guy's point, do trade quite differently. And a lot of those energy companies, the criticism years ago had been they're not making the transition from fossil fuels to clean energy, a lot of them have done a lot of work along that that realm. And I think that they've come a long way. There are a few things that are going for the energy sector that have less to do with the energy companies themselves, things like the fact that energy did not do so well in 2023. So if you're looking for an opportunity to enter something that hasn't had that big run up, energy is one of those sectors. The other thing is in a year where we would expect rates to continue falling, you're getting some pretty good dividends from a few of those companies. And I think dividend stocks are poised 
ways to do well in 2024 if rates keep coming down. Because rationally, if you just look at as an investor, what am I getting for owning this investment? Sometimes you're getting income. A lot of people are getting a ton of income from money markets right now or treasuries. If rates fall, you're not going to get that income anymore. You're looking for income in different places. So you start to transition over into dividend stocks and energy might be a big beneficiary of that. Yeah, no doubt. It's interesting to look at the XLP, which is the ETF that tracks consumer staples, the XLU, the ETF that tracks utilities, the way that they both fell off a cliff in September, right? As yields made that move towards 5%. And then they did the inverse, right? When yields came back from 5 to 4%. So they seem to be at a little bit of an equilibrium. And so really pick your poison as far as which way you think yields are going and how you want to be exposed to kind of dividend yield, because uh, obviously these are going to act as the inverse of that. Lastly, before we get out of here, let's talk about banks because Q4 earnings season is going to get kicked off Friday morning before the open. And if you think about it, I think like 30 or 40% of the XLF is reporting Friday morning, JP Morgan, Bank America, Wells Fargo, Citibank. I think BlackRock is also in there. And it's interesting. I was looking at the XLF, which is not a great indicator of the banks. We know the largest holding is Berkshire Hathaway, but the implied movement on just this week is a little more than 1% in either direction. So if you were looking to buy an at-the-money call or an at-the-money put that expires on Friday's close, right, that's going to incorporate all of those earnings on Friday morning, but obviously movement between now and then, you were really risking like half of a percent. Your break-even on an at-the-money is a 1%. I mean, that seems like a pretty cheap way to either hedge an existing portfolio, individual names, or whatever directional view you want to take. What are you expecting out of bank earnings? We know that this move lower in yield should help some of those, like a Bank America, which is outperformed, and a Citigroup that's outperformed, where there was thought to be some issues in their kind of held to maturity, mark-to-market portfolios, right? One of the reasons why they underperformed great deal on that move in yields higher from 3.5% from that March period of the SVB crisis and the like to the highs of 5% in the 10-year. They're going to have good marks for Q4, but what are they going to have to say about Q1 guidance or for the balance of the year? Because they don't have a whole heck of a lot of visibility, and I think the rate volatility is going to be specifically felt in the money center bank grouping for the balance of this year. We talked about this uh, last week, I think a little bit. I am positive on financials, at least for the beginning of this year. I want to say the first quarter and not extend out too long. But part of that is the idea that if and while economic data holds in and stays steady, you've got a little bit of a tailwind, if not just a floor on cyclicals, right? And, and financials being one of those those cyclical sectors. And if rates continue to fall, if we see a re-steepening in the yield curve, they do have a benefit just from the net interest margin perspective. So to your point, yes, the fourth quarter, I think we're probably going to hear good marks from them, not to mention banks are up as we mentioned, 20% since the end of October. So capital market activity was positive for them and yields coming down on the longer end, positive for them as well. So I think there probably were good things that happened in Q4. This year, I think we're going to see even further divergence among just those big banks. So last year, after the regional banking crisis, you saw them trade together for a while because they benefited from the regional bank issue. This year, I think they trade apart, and I'm not going to make a call on who's going to do better and who's going to do worse, but you do have to parse through what their business models look like. Bank of America, more exposed to consumer lending, and then you've got other companies more exposed to capital markets activity, right? Somebody like Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, more exposed to the M&A cycle. So I think what we're going to hear from CEOs is their outlook on their specific drivers. So you're going to hear about capital markets activity from the ones that are dependent on capital markets activity, right? And they're probably going to choose the things that 
could drive their stock higher. This week, just because of what's happened over the last quarter and because of some of the upgrades that have happened in City, for example, a lot of times with bank earnings, it's not so much about the earnings. It's not about the results. It's about what the CEOs say on the call. As usual, Jamie Dimon, I'm sure, will make some news, and he's obviously one of the most listened-to CEOs, so that one will always be at the top of the list to listen to. But I also think it's going to be interesting to hear what City has to say. They've been upgraded by a lot of different analysts, and they've made a ton of changes, so I think there's going to be probably more ears on that call than usual. You know, I was looking at the BKX, which is up about 35% versus the XLF, which is up 20% from those October lows. The BKX is still down 35% from its highs in late 2021, which I do think is interesting. And on a market cap basis, that is a whole heck of a lot more than it's gained in that 35%, right, off of those recent lows. So long ways to go. It's just under $100. I think it was very near 150 a couple years ago. I will say this about JP Morgan. It seems like while people chased the beta of a city and a Bank America, right, as rates came in, they thought that was the trade. If you look at the move in which JP Morgan had from its October lows to its recent highs, it was up 28%. So, so much more capital flowed into JP Morgan on a market cap basis. And you look at the steepness of that rally and the just the steadiness of it. To me, I, I just don't know what Jamie Dimon is going to be able to say, or I don't know what his incentives are to be overly optimistic, especially at a time where he's been very pessimistic over the last year and a half about the economy, about the direction of rates. And what he's had to say about rates is flies in the face of what we've seen over the last couple months. So, I just see a very, very steep uptrend. I see a retracement in JP Morgan probably back to 160. It's trading just above 171 or so right now. And might that lead the sector a bit lower? Because I think if anything, taking some of the froth out of some of these sectors that have outperformed from those October 27 lows makes sense, especially when you consider where the market got as far as rate cuts relative to the Fed's dot plots, relative to what a lot of these Fed speakers have been saying over the last month or so. I think equity markets have priced in a whole heck of a lot of easier monetary policy that might not just come. So we will see. Liz, you're going to be back with Guy and me on Wednesday on the market call. That's going to be excellent. Last time you were on on Wednesday, we took a bunch of calls for a half an hour. That was a lot of fun, right? So it was. Let's, let's do, it was. Let's yeah, do let's that do again. It again. That was a lot of fun. We really appreciate you being with us early on a Monday morning. We covered a lot of ground. I'm really happy for you and your Packers. And obviously your Bucks are doing well. Let's see what your brewers got in store for this okay, spring. One, as team we get into, one team at a time. One team at a time. Yeah, you got, we got a lot going on, but we like, we like our listeners. We'd like our viewers to know where you're focused on when you're not focused on the markets because it's all thing Wisco yep. sports. So we appreciate yep. it. Thank you, Liz. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, stick around for Guy and my conversation with Kenny Chung. He is the portfolio manager at Astera Capital. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. 
iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast. Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan. Today we have a treat, and I think, Dan, this is extraordinarily timely. Joining us today is Kenny Chung, Executive Director, Portfolio Manager at Astera Capital. Kenny, how are you? Very good. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here with you guys as well. Well, we're honored to have you, and thanks for joining us. And I mentioned it's extraordinarily timely, and I think our audience will understand that in a minute. But before we get into sort of the granular stuff, tell us about your background, how you got here your path to sort of finance? I've been in the fixed income industry for more than a decade. So I joined Estera like two years ago, and then I'm overseeing the whole platform, the hedge fund platform, especially managing the public credit long short portfolio, focusing 80% Asia and then 20% like something out of Asia. So my career started from the hedge fund industry, but not like being fixed income. So I started in some PE firms and then I switched to equity. The boss changed. So I forced to be like involved in fixed income and then it became like a 10 year career for me in the fixed income industry. So before I joined here, I actually worked in another hedge fund, which is actually found by like a Hugh House Capital and Tang Shen, the tech giant in China. I've been spending like four years there being like one of the first hirings uh, as a senior analyst and trader, helping to cover everything in the Asia credit market, like building up the research base, being like a trader there, covering everything when all the PMs are like flying around to fundraising during the heydays. So I'm actually the one who looking after all the credits, going all those like exotic trips in Indonesia, India, like being in the cold mines, et cetera. So that's how I started before I joined here. And then before that, I was actually working in the largest Shanghai mutual fund and also one of the five oldest like mutual fund in China. So they launched the offshore US dollar bond desk back in like 10 years ago. So I, I, I was the like a sole analyst and trader there as well. So to oversee everything as well and then help out like two PMs there. So you can see that my career actually not working in like very large fund house. But actually like being one of like the starting members of some new platforms or funds so that I got a chance to explore everything and to get in touch with everything within the Asia credit market. So that cultivates my career here 
that why I joined here because I've been coming across a lot of different fixing up strategies, including the safest money market fund to exotic like long short credit like hedge fund strategies. So that now I come here and oversee everything and start something that I would like to have build up my own portfolio that I feel it can go through multiple like credit cycles and generate alpha for investors. Kenny, as, as Guy just mentioned, you know, one of the things that we found so interesting about um, our, our ability to talk to you right now is that U.S. investors, when they think about China and they think about investing both equity and in the credit markets, you know, we've heard for like, it seems like at least a decade about this mounting, you know, credit bubble that's forming there. And so someone like yourself who manages this fund out of Hong Kong, but you just told us that you obviously managed funds on the mainland and you are boots on the ground. I mean, it seems like that, you know, some of the work that you've done um, prior to Astera, that you're out there in the field and understanding these companies and getting a sense for their sensibilities and obviously their credit needs. Give us a sense about the narrative that we hear. I think in the West, you know, every week there is an FT article or a Wall Street Journal article or Barron's article about this China credit bubble that ultimately will pop. Give us a sense for that, whether that the West has this right. You know what I mean? Like, is, is this an emerging problem? So basically what you just mentioned, I was actually on some of the articles as well, <laughs> commenting on that. So I guess to give a sense, if you want to invest in China, I guess all the headlines, some of them, there are buyers, but to be frankly speaking, yeah, leverage is large in China, but actually after a lot of turmoil, I guess a lot of companies actually are deleveraging nowadays, but people are just saying that, oh, the leverage are high because of growth. But I guess the, that's part of like emerging countries that are growing up. They have to have some leverage. So to give a like a deeper sense, the leverage in China is actually have different layers. That's why people can't understand how to analyze or invest in China. So give an example, say for like a property asset in China, they pledge it to like maybe a local banks. And then actually there are some holding companies onshore actually holding that asset to pledge the state of the asset actually to some of the security houses. And there's actually like offshore, like maybe Hong Kong company holding that onshore company can also pledge the same thing, pledge the shares of the offshore company to another bank or security houses. So the difficult thing to analyze on the China leverage is that, oh, you cannot see through all the layers within an asset or within like the, the company. So people can't understand what is it. They just understand, oh, there's a bubble because of the leverage or uh, all, the, all the, the loans are building up, building up. But actually, if you really go deep inside it and you're being the first one who can get in touch with the asset, don't be like the junior tranche of that, then I guess that will be better off as like a credit investor. But apart from that, also based on the fundamental analysis, which is like the financial statement analysis of what people are actually analyzing on, they cannot see all these layers of debt that scare them away. Because um, the financial statement can't reveal everything because some of like the holding companies or subsidiaries are actually not 100% owned by them or not consolidated on their financial statement. In order to understand well of all these things, you have to get close with the management, get close with the accountant, get close with the onshore Chinese banks and see how much they actually really lend to those companies in order to get a full picture of it. So this requires a lot of deep, dive in terms of your groundwork and also like relationship building in order to have a full sense of what are these companies are actually doing. 
Otherwise, if you just based on the very academic financial statement analysis, you cannot see everything in the full picture and that scares you away. So I guess that's the bias of oh, why a lot of like a media are writing that, oh, actually it's a very big bubble, etc. But you really understand it and you really know what are you investing in and which layer, what are the risks, then I guess it also have to mitigate some of the risks that you're facing. So that's how I look about like a China, like leverage and other the problem company about the POEs. It sounds like that becomes the value prop of Estera, that you're doing the work necessary to sort of understand, you know, what's investable and what's not investable. Whereas, you know, most people at 30,000 feet will just throw out the statement that, you know, China's in a property bubble, it's uninvestable. So I want to just throw that out there. We can drill down. But I also want to ask you, in terms of what's going on in China right now, I think President Xi, I want to say for the first time, but I'm sure it's happened before, has basically understood and has made the point and has come out publicly saying, you know, things are slowing down. And it seems as though the government's going to do what they need to do to support the economy. So is there some truth to that, that acknowledgement from him? And what does that mean, do you think, for some of the businesses and some of the things that you're looking at? I guess there's a very good sign that she actually met Biden back in like late November or December. That shows that I guess she understands that there's a big problem that happened in China. He thought that actually the economy will come back automatically by itself because of consumptions, like internal support, etc., or some of the policy, the interest rates are very low now. But however, it seems that the economy is moving very slowly. I guess he also afraid that actually if the economy is just like what happened in Japan like back in 30 years ago, it's not like a U-shaped rebound, but actually it became like a L-shape. That's what he also scared about as well. Otherwise, he won't be that open up to meeting up with Biden and also have a dinner with all like the U.S. corporates. I guess he also found that there's a problem in there. And also in order to shorten the bear cycle of the Chinese economy, I guess he also have to relieve some of the geopolitical tension between U.S. and China in order to attract back some of the foreign companies back for some investment, you know, to pull them up in order to shorten the bear cycle. So I guess he really understand that. So in order to do that, I guess he also have a lot of like stimulus plan in the meetings as well. And he's getting more open up versus what he did like during the COVID period, like standing very still on their zero COVID policy. Now, I guess he's understand the problem and he feels that it needs to open up in order to pull them back from the bear credit cycle. Otherwise, the economy might have a chance to become like what Japan have been done in like the past 30 years. And that's a great segue. I mean, just again, this is me putting my kind of normie U.S. investor hat on. If I were to look at like the Shanghai composite, you know, it really hasn't gone anywhere. You just you just mentioned Japan. Right. And, and, and so we know that Japanese equities were really in a funk for a very long time. Um, and, and, you know, I look at where the Shanghai Composites trading, it's, you know, it's been cut in half from its bubble highs back in 2007 or so, but it's really trading at where it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago and the like. From a credit perspective, how you think about it at Estera, do you see a lot more opportunities given the landscape that you just laid out, right, as far as what the perception is of, of, the, of the credit situation in China? And you could broaden it out to Asia, but are 
are we looking at the wrong thing if we're looking at the equity markets in China to get a sense for the health of their economy? When I travel back to China like last two months, actually the economy doesn't seem like they're going like a turn back from their like a bearish market quickly. Like I don't see any recovery signal that will be like eventually turn everything around. So that I guess you're right that actually the equity market are reflecting something that was the economy is happening. But I think everything is about like the cycles. So US now, okay, rates like stabilized, but it's still like at a mid single digit level in terms of the benchmark rate versus China, the interbank overnight borrowing rate is less than 2%. So when there's an interest rate differential there. So I would say that eventually, maybe U.S. may be experiencing some of like a soft landing or like, like maybe calling being more stabilized. And China, when the rates are low, I guess it also might able to attract different multinational companies or like borrowings there and building back the factory there, et cetera, et cetera, in order to expand the business because the funding cost is lower than U.S. like for like a one, two times. And the currency, I don't feel that there's any huge appreciation will be coming up of RMB against U.S. dollar. So I would say that it's more about the economic cycle instead of like a, there will be like a long lasting, like a bearish market in China. And one thing is very important to me is that when I compare like Japan to China, I think China has a very key thing is that the policy power is a lot larger than Japan. Because when I invest in China, the largest risk is the policy risk instead of like everything in the market. Because if she talks about one sentence, it will become like a new signal, new positive catalyst for the market. Instead of versus some capitalist, some market, maybe it requires the market to turn things around. So I guess if China really turns things around and he now realize that things are going pretty wrong. So if he really provide a lot of stimulus, especially into the coming like one year. So I guess they might able to turn things around versus what China China might experience like Japan like in the 30 years ago, like since 30 years ago. So I would say that uh, it's very key for him to catch the right timing now to really try to put more stimulus to the market and turn things around. And when everything is getting expensive, say US equity is expensive, Japan equity is actually rallying like 30%, India equity is actually rallying 30%. So when things are getting expensive and now when people look for their asset allocation or when you go for maybe dollar stabilized, people go for EM, then you can see China is cheap, right? Unless you have buyers that you think that China's economy will never ever come back. But I doubt that with that power of the policy from the leader of China, I guess I would expect there will be more like a U-shaped rebound instead of like an L-shape. And I would say when there's a valuation that's cheap, I guess people will allocate the capital back to China. So I don't think that the game is over yet, but I would say that in the past like two or three years, there might be some bump on the road, but it's not like forever lasting, like kind of like a bearish market in China economy. Kenny, on the credit front, China's probably 50% of you know the Asian credit market, but obviously there's some other opportunities. I mean, Korea, Singapore, Japan, Vietnam. Are there any things that we never talk about that are on your radar screen in terms of opportunity? In the last two years, when China is having like a bearish economy, so people actually look for things outside of China. And in the credit market, Asia credit market, before that, China was accounting for 50% of the index. Now it's just like around 20%. So people should explore things outside of China. For example, India, Japan, no matter DM market or EM market within like Asia, 
The good thing about that is when you see that, say, Japanese equity are doing good, Indian credit, uh, like equity are doing good, it provides like a very good opportunity for company, especially high yield companies, distressed company to tap along with the equity market to capture some funding by doing placement, putting some of the subsidiaries on IPO to capture some capital to fulfill the debt obligation on the credit side. So that's what we um, have been seeing in the past two years, that Indian funding channel is open up, onshore funding channel, Japan funding channel, onshore is open up, so that banks are more willing to lend to companies, especially on the distressed company. And then even on the onshore capital market, say for Japan or India, Indonesia, actually the market is getting larger and larger, so that for companies that beforehand, they rely on offshore US dollar bond issuance in order to, to fulfill, to refinance the debt, or in order to borrow money. Now okay, they also diversify the funding channel to onshore market. Banks are willing to lend to them. They can also tap along with the onshore bond market to diversify their funding channel. So that it also provides a very good technical support to the offshore US dollar bond market because supply are less because they will try to use different ways to, to do the refinancing. And also they will try to buy back the expensive dollar bonds in the offshore market because the rates are getting higher and treasury is at like 4-5%. So that for their company, it usually when they can issue at like mid single digit, they now have to issue like at high single digit to low teens. They find it very expensive versus their onshore funding so that they will buy back the bonds, do some tenders, etc. So that it provides a very good technical support in the markets as well. So that's the opportunity that we see in other parts of China. Kenny, talk to us a little bit about the volatility in yields that we've had in the U.S. And you talked a little bit before about the differential with China. Is that presenting, you know, specific opportunities just timing wise, right? Are you watching the Fed and the dot plots and a lot of the economic data here the way we are watching it to get a sense if the Fed is actually going to cut as soon as, let's say, the market expects it to? And will that sort of of increased volatility because again, we had a 4% 10 year yield that went to 5% in two months and then it went back to 4%. And I know that you've been following these markets for a long time as we have. That sort of volatility is kind of unheard of. Is it presenting short term opportunities for you and I guess in a more stable rate environment over there? I guess the, the volatility actually provides uh, opportunity in terms of like a trading perspective. So if you look at the Asia credit market, 70-80% of the market are composed of investment grade. So what it means by investment grade is that the quality names are actually the, the spread of the investment grade are actually around mid-100 like mid basis point. Say when the absolute yield is at like 4-5%, 100 basis point doesn't provide any buffer in terms of the credit. Therefore, actually a lot of the Asia credit investment grade are actually very rate sensitive. So when the rates are moving massively like from like mid-October from 5% back to now around 4% in 10 years, actually the market is pretty are very bullish about that. But when you say when the treasury rate, actually, if they rebound from like 4% back to 5% or 4.5%, actually the market will sell off again. So you have to catch the cycle or like the even like a very short term monthly movement in terms of the rates on a very precise way based on all the judgment about the macro market and very top down. So we are actually also falling like quite closely with every data point, say tonight, there's some data points and their non-farm payroll like like, like in, in, in the first week of January. So all these data points, 
we have to follow it closely in order to catch like some of the news and some of the data points that that the Fed provide or the market provide in order to catch like a very short term trading opportunity. If you catch everything right, actually can generate a lot of alpha in terms of that because in terms of spread, there aren't any huge opportunity, especially in the quality names like A minus credits to like triple B plus credit. So it's all really race dependent. So that's the like when when the market is volatile, actually it creates trading opportunities for us. But for mutual fund strategy, actually it creates a turmoil because the position is even a lot larger than like a hedge fund so that they have to force to sit on the volatility. So that's offer like a worst off scenario for mutual funds versus hedge funds. But for hedge fund, if you catch everything right, then you can outperform a lot of mutual funds in, in, in the Asia credit market. So that's more about the race volatility, how it impacts our market. Kenny, you mentioned earlier President Xi's visit to the United States with President Biden. You didn't say it, but you know, basically my interpretation was a bit of an olive branch on his part. And there might be some truth to that. But three weeks or so after that meeting, it came out in the press that President Xi had basically told President Biden in terms of Taiwan, and I'm paraphrasing, that they will take over Taiwan by any means necessary. So my question to you is, how do you factor in that risk, if at all, in terms of some of your assessments that you make? So in our part of the world, so in like China, Hong Kong, we have priced in some of the risks in terms of when China is going war with like Taiwan, but we don't feel it will happen before 2027. Why is that precise? It's because the term will end, um, the next five years term will mature in 2027. So in our analysis, what news uh, or information are prevailing in the greater China area is that we do not think the military or the preparation are really ready in terms of for China to go against the world and then to go against US. We're pricing some of the risks, but um, we also hedge it by some of like using some tools like credit default swap to hedge some of the China risks. However, we are not overhedging or over-exaggerating that this event will happen soon. Yeah, so that's what our view in terms of what you just mentioned. Kenny's from a U.S. investor perspective and using a little bit of the situation with Russia's invasion of Ukraine as a precedent, you know, a lot of U.S. multinational companies, either they did it on their own or they were forced to, to kind of move out of Russia, right? And so we've also seen over the last few years during COVID, the reliance on U.S. multinationals for manufacturing and the way that they built their supply chains in China and obviously Taiwan. And so here here we are, we have the first iPhone, the iPhone 15, that actually was shipped, or a small percentage of them, from India, right? So we're seeing this kind of reshoring sort of diversification as far as um, supply chains. And I just wonder that, you know, the U.S. and China have had this really useful partnership. You know, we would manufacture there. We would orient supply chains. We would get cheaper manufacturing. We'd ultimately get access to the growing middle class in China. But some of the pushback that we've seen with heightened geopolitical tensions between the two countries, right, and the scenario that you just laid out, whether something happens soon as it relates to Taiwan or later, right, it's going to be ever present in the minds of U.S. policymakers but also U.S. CEOs and the like. So my question, I guess, is as we 
have heightened tensions. And listen, I think we all wish that they would tamp down, right? Like, because we can be a great partnership for all intents and purposes, right? But if we were to see further nationalistic tendencies by U.S. consumers for consumer goods, let's just say for smartphones, for electric vehicles, right? Might our dependence on each other grow apart and then our interest in working together get that much further apart too? Is that something that a Chinese investor considers? Because I know a lot of U.S. investors are considering that. What you mean is that will Chinese like uh, consumers avoid buying like the U.S. products? Yeah. And part of that question is we've already seen, you know, um, Chinese government workers being banned from from having iPhones or using them in the office or it, it, even just in this quarter, you know, and you could say that this has something to do with maybe the strategies that these two companies that, you know, Tesla's bet big on China, right? They have the, sh- the Shanghai Gigafactory, um, but they don't have a car right now that's competing as well with BYD, a local manufacturer at a lower price point. And then they're also almost like fast fashion for EV cars, right? They have their finger on the pulse of what Chinese consumers want, right? They want cheap and they want new and fresh looking and the like. And so I just wonder if the tensions continue to build up, whether we're going to see Chinese consumers, whether by their own accord or by some sort of direction, you know, really lean into local manufacturers, making it less interesting for U.S. companies to spend too much time and energy focused on China. To me, is that people, when they come out publicly to say that, especially some government authorities or even like corporate CEO, they come out and say, okay, let's follow the government. But actually on a lot of sidetrack or a lot of private dinner, you can see that they're all using iPhone. They just have two phones, right? One private phone is like iPhones, but they're, they're also using like non-iPhone as a work phone. So I don't feel like a strong view that Chinese investors or consumers are actually avoiding to use U.S. products. Of course, like when people ask them, they would say, oh, I love my own country's like products. So I would use BYD or like maybe other type electric products instead of Tesla. But you can see that they're using a lot of like foreign products as well. And and the market in China is very large. You can see there are like 1.3 billion of people that different people have different like tastes and also appetites. So especially young people, if you come out using like a like a non-iPhone, people or the peers will say, oh, why you are using like a non-iPhone? Because of course, some of the local phones like Huawei had a good functionality, etc. But in order to make them to feel like I'm more like a globalized people, I'm more international presence, like kind of a teenagers or young people, I will also have some foreign products like in my pocket. So I don't feel that in terms of the consumer basis, there would be a huge impact of avoiding using foreign products. At least that's what I've seen in the past two years when I travel back to China to talk to people that from onshore, especially for young people. And young people now actually have a, like a better purchasing power and also willing to purchase versus the past because Chinese people love to save money, right? But now young people actually are trying to follow the trend that what well, the U.S. consumers are like have a less saving rate, uh, especially young people. They're like a huge consumer in terms of entertainment goods or luxury goods or like like necessities. So I don't feel there's a strong view that people are avoiding any like U.S. products, especially have what I've seen in the past few years. Kenny, how can our audience find out more about Astera Capital and what you guys and gals have going on? 
We guys have LinkedIn, we have web page. So we are actually attending like the Miami's Global Aussie event so that you can find a booth there. And then actually some of our background is actually found by three of the top four developers in Hong Kong, including like New World, Soundkai, like Anderson Land. So we are very tied to all those old tycoon families. We are actually, apart from a public credit strategy, we're doing a lot of private credit deals as well. We have the vision to build like a multi-strat, like a hedge fund platform. So we got a, a very sticky seed money base of background because of the old tycoon. So yeah, so that's why we have a sense to build up like a more sustainable platform. And all of our founders are actually the second, third gen of the like the old Hong Kong tycoon families. So that we are all very young and energetic so that we, we have a long path to go through so that we, we want to feel some, build something that's stable, sustainable, and go through different cycles. So feel free to hit us up if you guys need anything. Well, Guy, he just said young and energetic. And when we're down in Miami for the iConnections Global All, he, he better show us young and energetic because at South Beach, man, you know, we can go late down there, buddy. So uh, listen, we really appreciated the conversation. It was wide reaching. And your thoughts on China are something that I think uh, our listeners, Guy, um, are really excited to hear about from somebody on the ground over there too so thank you kenny for joining us you're welcome thanks dan thanks guy thanks again to our presenting sponsors cme group iConnections, factset and sofi if you like what you heard make sure you hit follow and leave us a review it helps other people find the show and we also want to hear from you email us at contact at riskreversal.com Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.